The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight and happy to see that most people remember to put a name tag on. We'll be having our small groups later. It's always nice to have a name tag just so we can get to know each other. So this is week six. Next week, week seven, we'll look at the refuge, uh, refuge of Sangha. So we're now looking at the more traditional formulation of refuge after having reflected on faith and refuge in general. And this is a very particular formula that we're digging into, Buddha, knowing Dhamma. So Buddha, in a way, the ultimate subject. Dhamma, the ultimate object, the way it is. Knowing, right? The knowing, the one who knows, as they say in the Thai forest tradition, opening, knowing the way it is. And out of that intimacy moves or flows Sangha, enlightened activity, kind activity, skillful activity, the kind of activity that naturally flows when a human being, when a mind is intimate, Buddha knowing Dhamma, then action is beautiful. It reflects the intimacy, the connection, right? the undefendedness, the inclusivity of that mind, then that action is going to be, at least relatively, skillful, beautiful, appropriate to the time and place. Precisely because it's coming out of a mind that isn't limited. It isn't like we're not in a self-constructed box about what's going on in the moment or who I am or who you are. The mind is in an, in an open inclusive, right? That's Buddha, open, inclusive presence, stable presence, including connecting, seeing clearly, comprehending deeply the way it is. And the way it is is always the movement of body-mind or the movement of what's ever here in the moment. So I mentioned in the small groups, um, just to kind of set up the reflection for the end of the evening, maybe you've already reflected on it, I mentioned it I believe last week, but to think about times today, this week, somewhere in your life, where it felt that there was that natural coming together of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Just a mind, a knowing mind, being intimate, being undefended, not meeting the moment with fixed views, but in that open, clear, open. And then just to talk about that, and then what got in the way, or what was in the way before it was Buddha knowing Dhamma, right? What allowed the, that, that, that moment or those moments to unfold to be the way that they were? What seems to get in the way of Buddha knowing Dhamma? 
I'll just give you an example because, I mean, this is really what we're doing when we're sitting. And I'm sure it's probably everybody in the room, but at least most of us, right, are very familiar. One of the ongoing obstacles for a seasoned meditator is the habit of trying to meditate, getting in the way of what we call meditation, right? Like that Dharma coach or that that sort of edifice that calls itself the meditator, me, you know, who wants to do a good job at the meditation, wants some peace or wants to fi- have a breakthrough or have an insight, doing something seems to be a problem a lot of the time. And then we add to that problem when we construct another person, right now sort of like the secondary meditator, who thinks that he has to get rid of the first meditator in order to meditate. And it can go, you know, there can be more and more layers to this entanglement. So this is worthy of contemplation as we're doing tonight, right? This is the theme for the talk and for your small group discussions. It's like, what, what do we mean, the refuge of Buddha knowing Dhamma? And, you know, there's some telltale signs. It has to be the most natural, simple thing, right? It has to be real, like we say sometimes, organic, not contrived. Let me just read a little bit from a few sources here. First from uh, Joseph's book. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago a nice book that Joseph Goldstein wrote a while back called One Dharma. He was really, he he had done, previous to this, to writing this book, he had done a lot of Tibetan practice with Nosho Kempo, a very well, he's dead now, but a very well-known Tibetan teacher of some Westerners back in the 80s and 90s, early 90s. And uh, so Joseph thought, you know, it's time (laughs) to write a book about like, how all these different, in some, t- in some ways, very different practices, certainly spoken about differently, how, what, what, what is the essence? And so that, that was sort of the impetus for the book One Dharma. And he, in this chapter, he's talking about refuges. He writes, We begin to have confidence in the moment, in the actuality of experience. We see what is there for ourselves? What is a thought, a sensation, an emotion? What is the nature of experience free from the proliferation of concepts and limited views? An immediacy of knowing comes from simple, uncontrived awareness in a moment of hearing. There is um, an immediacy of knowing comes from simple, uncontrived awareness. In a moment of hearing, is there any doubt or confusion? We are wa- walking in the woods. There is a sound of a bird call, just hearing. We experience a strong sense of presence. This immediacy of knowing right now of the breath, a sound, some movement, points to the innate wakefulness of our own mind. We learn to recognize this wakefulness 
become familiar with it and trust it. And I'll mention again, I think I did earlier, Ajantani Saro has this phrase translating the Buddha talking about the fruit of practice, Nibbana, as unprovoked awareness release. Unprovoked awareness release. So that's really the fruit of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right? So we're looking here, and it's always here like any moment will do, we're interested in something that's very natural, unprovoked, uncontrived. It doesn't arise because somebody does something. It's there before somebody does something, during somebody doing something, right? So it's always there, always available, you could say. But the mind is almost always obscured by the sense of me doing something the sense of me needing to do something, the sense of me not having done something well enough or having done something brilliantly and wondering if anybody's noticed. So there's always this surface level you know, of intention. That's why near the end of the guided meditation, you know, just opening to the possibility of intention, the cessation of intention, the non-confusion, not being confused by intention, the need to do, the impulse to do. Wouldn't that be, I mean, when we, just uh, even on an intellectual level, maybe beyond that, some intuition, but you know, when we think and intuit being free from intention, being free from like having to do our life, having to live our life. So it sounds a little bit like death. <laughs> right? It's like, oh yeah, I could kill myself. But that's just another doing, right? Just another thing I got to do. I got to put that on my to-do list. <laughs> I got to tie all the knots together so it, I'm all ready to do that. You know, it's like, oh, I should probably call that person, you know, and figure out who's going to take care of the cat. So the dropping away or the willingness to not own intention, it's really letting nature be nature. I mean, words will always be limited here. But we want to have that flavor our Buddha knowing Dhamma. And, and you see how it so naturally leads to what we talk about with Sangha, the sort of enlightened activity of kindness and engagement and skillful responding, nimble responding to the moment. Because if we're not burdened being a doer, having to do our life, having to be good, having to fix, having to control, then whatever this activity is, it's just free to do what needs to be done in the moment. There's sort of nothing in the way of the activity of the body and mind taking care of what needs taken care of in the moment. No fear, no neurotic sense of something you know, that hasn't been done, that needs to be done. 
I sent a couple articles out today, short articles, one from Pema Chodron. This is uh, just a short excerpt, a couple pages from her book, uh, The Wisdom of No Escape, one of her earlier books. Maybe some of you have read it. It's a great book. Most of her books are great, I think. And uh, in this chapter, I forget what chapter it is, but she's talking about refuge. She writes, So for us, taking refuge means that we feel that the way to live is to cut the ties, to cut the umbilical cord, and alone start the journey of being fully human without confirmation from others. So this, I, I, I'm going to read more, but she's really uh, talking, I think, about... Um, it's, it's more than... It's sort of a, a deeper fruit of non-attachment. I mean, we get a sense of like, not being attached, but that can still be a bit of a stance, like trying to not be attached, not to cling, just to let things be. So a more subtle instruction is around intention, like how the mind relates to doing or intention. And it's really, uh, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, about letting the nature, right, the activity of the mind and body, just trusting the activity of the mind and body. That's why we have kindergarten, you know, our daily sitting practice, where it's a little, seems, uh, at least on the surface, a little safer to just let everything be, to let the mind move, to let the body move, the sensations in the body, sound and sight move. So she writes, continues writing, Taking refuge is the way that we begin cultivating the openness and the good-heartedness that allow us to be less and less dependent. So the Buddha talks about self-reliance or independence. Pema Chodron continues writing, We might say we shouldn't be dependent anymore. We should be open. But that isn't the point. The point is that you begin where you are, you see what a child you are, and you don't criticize that. Right? So we don't like this is what I meant earlier, you know, when I was talking about how that idea of being a meditator, and then we have to create another meditator to get rid of that meditator, and on and on like that. And it's the same thing if we like she's saying here, if we catch ourselves doing something, practicing, you know, acting out intention, then we might think I have to construct another me to figure out how to stop doing that intention, being caught in intention. But it's really, it's always, you know, the Buddhist teachings are always about a transformation of understanding. So the move is really simple. It's recognizing that intention is not self, right? That everything, doesn't matter what it is, it comes and goes, everything's in motion, and it's not self. It's already just the activity of nature. So it's moving from a place of misunderstanding intention as in somebody's doing something to understanding intention as a movement of nature, just something being known. So Pema Chodron continues writing, 
I'll just reread that sentence. We shouldn't be dependent anymore. We should open. But that isn't the point. The point is that you begin where you are. You see what a child you are, and you don't criticize that. You begin to explore with a lot of humor and generosity toward yourself all the places where you cling. And every time you cling, you realize, ah, this is where, through my mindfulness and my tonglen, that's a particular Tibetan practice of breathing in the suffering in you, around you, giving out the goodness, giving it away. Basically, changing the self-centered instinct, right, where we want to keep the bad away and hold on to the good. This is where, through our through my mindfulness and my tonglen and everything that I do, my whole life is a process of learning how to make friends with myself. On the other hand, this need to cling, this need to hold the hand, this cry for mom, also shows us, shows you that that's the edge of the nest. Stepping through right there, making a leap, becomes the motivation for cultivating metta, loving-kindness. You realize that if you can step through that doorway, you're going forward. You're becoming more of an adult, more of a complete person, more whole. Yeah, and this is such an interesting thing, you know, by learning to let the doer be the doer, let the neurotic movements of the mind, right, the personality, to let it be nature, right? To meet it in that kind way. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Sometimes it's like this. The body's like this, the mind's like this, the emotional patterns are like this. Sometimes it's wild like this, sometimes it's dead and flat like this, sometimes it's hot and mean and hateful like this, sometimes it's sweet and kind like this, of course. So this is the great, you know, move, taking refuge means that, I mean, it, it sounds a little strange to say this in such an imperfect world, but that it's okay. It's okay to let everything be the way that it is. And you see why we need this kindergarten of daily sitting practice or formal meditation practice. We're learning to not meet our experience with this habit of constructing as somebody who has to do something. Many of you have heard me talk about this retreat I did with Ajahn Sumedho that was so potent, you know, because the whole retreat, he, he was basically talking about, you know, insight, stream entry, as sometimes it's called in the tradition of a deep kind of, awakening to this inherent freedom. And he would often, during that retreat, the nine-day retreat, he would say something like, you know, I'm a suffering human being who's practicing in order to be free. And then he'd laugh. I mean, a real laugh about the absurdity, like that that idea seems so rational, so true, doesn't it? I'm a suffering human being who needs to practice in order to become free. And, uh, and the thing is, it seems skillful, but 
partly because that thought seems so rational, we forget to just let it be what it is. It's something that comes and goes and is not self. So we don't have to act out. We don't have to embody, in a sense, or live out of that intention of, I'm a deluded, I'm a suffering, I'm a neurotic, I'm a defensive, fearful, anxious human being who's being really sincere, my practice in order to be free in somewhere, as I imagine, out there in the future when I'm, my practice gets really together, then I'll be free. And what we can directly experience is that's not Buddha knowing Dhamma, like identification with that thought, taking that thought to be more than what it is, like some expression of reality, always comes with weight, a crunch, that identification with that thought. Same with thinking you have to be the one who rejects that thought. I should stop thinking that thought. Don't think that thought. That thought is not true. That also comes with some psychic weight, some crunch. But understanding that that thought's just a thought, that's Buddha knowing Dhamma. Realizing right, that's not having to be for it or against it. Letting thoughts, emotions, sensations, sights, sounds, or anything of the body and mind, anything that we generally refer to as reality, letting it move. That's what it's going to do that anyway. It's going to move anyway. Can we trust that movement? What would that be like? So this is what you can share in your small groups, those moments when it, you know, your experience had that flavor, that taste of freedom, that lightness, less of a sense of there being somebody burdened, there being somebody tasked with having to do this life, right? When that wasn't so apparent. One of the, and this is from the other article I sent today, which is a chapter in one of Ajahn Sumedho's earlier books, Now is the Knowing. Got to be one of the all-time better titles, huh? (laughs) Now is the Knowing. It's a very small booklet, and the first chapter is on the refuges, so I just sent that out um, to everybody today who's on the email list. And in that short chapter, uh, Ajahn Sumedho talks in a traditional way about how the Buddha and the Buddhist tradition talks about dhamma, like what are the characteristics of dhamma. So Buddha is that awakenness, that capacity. We sometimes use that image of a mirror, a very vibrant, clear mirror that is just effortlessly, perfectly, endlessly reflecting the way it is. That's what that mirror does. And there's no stopping that mirror from doing that, except because of neurotic activity, we can forget that the mirror is there, right? And which is what we do most of the time. We forget that that mirror, th- that Buddha, that awakenedness is there. So we take it as a refuge. We train the mind to keep remembering, oh yeah, right? Because don't you now, being prompted, can't you intuit that there is this effortless thing, whether you want to call it Buddha or awareness or whatever it is, that's just 
there effortlessly reflecting back what's going on, the activity of the body-mind right now. Isn't it there? And as we trust it more and more, we realize, right, we awaken to what that mirror does. It knows, it feels, and in being awake to the way it is, to Dhamma, then this experience of freedom comes to the fore. The, the freedom that's always there. Like this is the interesting thing. We think there's a somebody who has to stop clinging or stop being attached. But it's really the realization that there may be the appearance of suffering or friction or resistance or fear or need, right? Certainly there is for me in moments, a lot of the moments, an appearance of tightness. But the realization is that that's an appearance, that the movement of nature, the movement of body and mind, the movement of dhamma never ceases. It's always moving. So the, the freedom is that the heart or this has never been a problem. As convinced as we are, as on this, from this conventional point of view, as certain as we are that this is a problem. <laughs> you know, life, the world is problematic, right? Because in a conventional sense, it is. And we're not denying that conventional sense. We're just awakening to the other half of the equation, which, which turns out to really help us deal with the conventional sense of suffering, the, the conventional reality of suffering and injustice and all the problems. Otherwise, we're always dealing with the conventional level of suffering from a neurotic point of view of a being a person who doesn't want to be contaminated by all the suffering in the world which is why we never really are able to make a dent in the suffering because we're afraid of getting stained, getting sucked in, you know, with the ex- exception of a few people who aren't afraid. And what do they know that we don't know, the people who are unafraid? Somehow, you know, they, depending on their sort of spiritual tradition or their culture, you know, they may use different words, but somehow they know it's okay. It's okay to give our life away. It's okay to love unconditionally. People don't need to deserve our love to be loved. So the traditional... Well, let me mention just about that dynamic between the relative and the absolute a lot of you heard this phrase. It's this famous Buddhist, uh, Padmasasambhava, who one of the people who brought Buddhism up into Tibet back uh, more than a thousand years ago. Uh, he has this really great phrase, although my view, or you could say my wisdom, although my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma, to cause and effect, is as fine as a grain of barley flour, right? So it's like precisely because 
I can rest in Buddha knowing Dhamma as a refuge, the heart understands it's okay to let everything be, to let everything go. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Precisely because of that, I'm able to be concerned with karma, cause and effect, injustice, what needs to be done, what needs taken care of, to this nth degree of refinement, showing up for everything, you know, showing up for the PTA meeting, you know, the sort of endless bureaucratic, you know, the inefficiencies of how institutions make decisions. Like, oh, I can't be bothered getting involved with, you know, municipal politics or county politics or state politics or the local school boards or my family dynamic, you know, or what's going on at Common Ground or my other communities that I inhabit. It's just, you know, there's just so much ignorance. People got their egos. But that's precisely because we still are this, we're not Buddha knowing Dhamma. We're this guy or this person seeing things in terms of our likes and dislikes. So how can we show up in the world in any sort of useful way? We're totally, all we see is likes and dislikes. But when we're Buddha knowing Dhamma, we see freedom. We experience freedom. So it's like, it doesn't matter if we're going to a PTA meeting or we're in that sort of perfect cabin gazing over the perfect lake at sunset no mosquitoes, you know, it's like we're not, the freedom isn't, it's freedom precisely because it's not dependent on being in that perfect place. We're just as free going to the PTA meeting or speaking truth to power or, you know, writing a letter to the editor or having that conversation with our partner that we've been avoiding having or whatever. The freedom is just as real there as it is in that sort of stereotypic place, sitting on the side of a mountain, you know, feeling the cool mountain breeze. And then this traditional description of Dhamma, the way it is in the tradition, really points to the immediacy of it, that it It's always here. Whatever it is we're awakening to, whatever Buddha awakens to, we don't need a special place and time. So this is in that article that I sent out today in Ajahn Sumero's writing. So when we describe describe Dhamma or give an impression of it, we do it through words such as sandatiko, which means imminent, here and now that brings us back to the present, we feel a sense of immediacy of now. You may think that Dhamma is some kind of thing that is out there, something you have to find elsewhere. But Dhamma means that it's imminent here and now. Akalika is the next word. means that Dhamma is not bound by time condition. The word Akala means timeless. 
our conceptual mind can't conceive of anything that is timeless because our conceptions and perceptions are time-based conditions. But what we can say is that Dhamma is akala, not bound by time. And we feel that, like when in those moments that you might share in your small group tonight, you know, not to be too out there, but there is a sense of timelessness. We don't think this way. We don't get how time is a concept. It's a, it's a construct of the mind. It's something that's projected on to the moment. There's another term in the tradition, um, ekagata, one-pointedness. And a lot of people misunderstand that as like I'm really focusing on one aspect of the present moment. But the one-pointedness is this insight that this is all-inclusive. And so location is a concept. So location disappears and time disappears. So even in a simple moment of mindfulness, which is Buddha knowing Dhamma, there's a sense of no time no place, just this, or, you know, there's, we have words, but they're just words, suchness or thusness, um, or words in the, in the Buddhist tradition. And a couple more words that are used to talk about Dhamma. Ehi pasiko, or ehi pasika. This is a phrase that some of you have heard, because it's repeated a lot in the, the discourses of the Buddha. Come and see, to turn toward, or to go to the Dhamma. It means to look, to be aware. It is not that we pray to the Dhamma to come or wait for it to tap us on the shoulder. We have to put forth effort. Right? We have to put forth effort because the tendency of the mind is to get lost in thought, is to orient around our thoughts about things. So the effort initially is to not do the habit, right? To do something that's more imminent, more simple, more immediate. And he quotes from the Bible, maybe, knock on the door and it shall be open. Ehipasiko means that we have to put forth that effort to turn toward that truth, the truth of the way it is. And then opanaiko means leading inwards toward the peace within the mind. Dhamma doesn't take us into fascination, into excitement, romance, and adventure, but leads to Nibbana, to calm, to silence. Remember, remember, Nibbana means cessation, cessation of neurotic activity, the quieting of all neurotic activity. And then the last um, aspect of Dhamma means that we can only know Dhamma through direct experience. It is like the taste of honey. If someone else tastes it, we still don't know it as, it as its flavor. We may know it by the chemical formula or be able to recite all the great poetry written about honey, but, we only, but only when we taste it for ourselves do we really know what it is like. It's the same with Dhamma. We have to taste it. We have to know it directly. So then, that's the setup for the small groups tonight. Moments 
of that experience. And I'll just share, like if I were going to be in one of the small groups tonight, I might share something that happened a long, long time ago, you know, 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago. I don't even remember how old I was, but I'm guessing somewhere around eight or nine. I was just walking home from elementary school. We lived, you know, three quarters of a mile or so from school. And back then you walked to and from school. And uh, a block I had walked on, you know, so many times. And it was just a very ordinary, like looking at a sidewalk and kind of the edge of the sidewalk where the grass of somebody's lawn began. And I just remember it's like really standing out. I didn't understand. I didn't have words or anything. But there was something about that experience. Like I knew I had seen something. But when I thought about it, it was just like sidewalk and grass. I mean, it was like nothing special. But it was Dhamma. That's what I saw. I mean, now I got Buddhist language and I got Buddhist insight to better understand what happened, you know, 52 years ago, whatever it is that somehow the mind was balanced. Buddha was there, awakeness was there, and it just so happened that, because the moment doesn't matter, the activity of seeing or hearing or thinking never matters. What matters is, is that mirror of Buddha being recognized and seen for what it does? It reveals things as they are. So although the kind of conventional sense, it was grass and sidewalk, the experiential was something that was timeless and locationless, right? It had a sense, an intuitive sense of freedom, right? Because the mind in that moment, maybe a couple seconds, was unbound by the normal things that limit and, you know, constrain the experience. And it's like even this many years later, it sort of stands out. I, you know, I have some mental images of that moment, but what remains is that taste, right, of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Simple moments like that. And it's important, like when you share, not to go into all the riffs you had about it. I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to go there a little bit because you're talking to other people. But to really see if you can connect with that taste. And then as you share your experience of Buddha knowing Dhamma or what gets in the way or questions you have about what we've been talking about these last few weeks, Right? But then you have to bring language to it. But to just get to have some confidence in the tastes you've had of this freedom, however it's shown up in your life. Is that enough to go on? So, l- probably a little bit more than 60 tonight. So, why don't we ca- count off by 22? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.